Do you know what tunnel vision is? I suspect most people know what it is. The dictionary, just for the sake of it, defines it as constriction of vision field resulting in the loss of peripheral vision, meaning... I don't know if you've ever been to the doctor before and he begins uh, eye doctor and does this number and tell me when you can't see it anymore, all right? That's what they usually say. Tell me when you can't see it anymore. I've been blessed over my life. I've been in sports all my life, so I've always had a pretty wide field of vision, but uh, that doesn't mean that I, along with many others, are not susceptible to what we call tunnel vision. The dictionary also defines it as another way, single-minded concentration on one object. That kind of defines it even a little bit better when we think about tunnel vision. For those who are familiar with football, have you ever seen a player blindsided? Those that are familiar with it have seen those horrible scenes where, and I mean, I've watched enough that I can see a guy and I want to turn my head, but I can't. You know, I know it's going to happen. I, I can see it coming. And this guy, he is so focused in on tackling the guy with the ball that he forgets the 240 pounder that's bearing down on him really, really hard. And then all of a sudden he sees signs and wonders and visions from another world. You can get blindsided playing ball. And then, of course, one of the notorious things is texting and driving, how dangerous that is in, in different phases. And we know that uh, people, it's easy to get blindsided when you're doing that. So it's easy to get tunnel vision and um, not be aware of everything that is around. I, I really believe that's what's happening here, and I'll explain that a little bit more. So the followers of Jesus were always focused on their own Jewish kingdom. We've, we've all st- we're older here, so all of us have studied the Bible to know enough to know that the Jews were always big on the Jewish kingdom. That's what it was about. Remember, they wanted to make Jesus king. It was all about the Jewish kingdom. Their focus was totally on Jewish people and the Jewish kingdom and dominating the world to a great degree. They thought that it was a, a big vision. But in this passage, I believe, Jesus begins to teach them what a very small vision it is, actually how tunnel visioned they really were. And he hits that a number of times, but particularly in this passage of Scripture. And I understand we've heard this passage of Scripture multitudes of times probably from missionaries and many others, and I have as well, but just kind of took a new look at it. So we're talking about Jesus trying to Broaden their spiritual peripheral vision is what we're looking at. If I can take a side trip just for a moment to give you a real good point on that. In Luke chapter 5, we have a familiar passage where it says, And and it came to pass that as the people passed upon him or pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake by the fishermen. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Obviously, they'd already been out. We'll see that. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. 
And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. But he says, Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Because they were experts at this thing. They, they knew about fishing more than the Creator did about the fish, all right? So then it says, And when they had done this, when they were obedient, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake, and they beckoned their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. And Peter at that point, verse 8, confesses his sinfulness before the Lord. But verse 10 and so was also James and John, sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, for from henceforth I will make you fishers of men. So obviously there was a completely different perspective from Peter's idea of fishing. His was based on time and experience as opposed to what Jesus wanted him to see, that the vision is a whole lot bigger. And that's what we have in this passage of Scripture. For it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick. And there are so many things in this. And, and, uh, but verse 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest... Truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. So what I want to share with you is kind of fixing our tunnel vision. Is that what we have? So here's a couple of questions. Are we living our lives with tunnel vision? Are we only understanding and are we only seeing our little personal world and maybe only our little faith kingdom. So as Jesus was trying to enlarge their peripheral vision, obviously the scripture has been left for us that maybe he can enlarge our vision also. And there are five elements that I want to share with you quickly in this passage that challenges me and I hope it challenges all of, all of us on spiritual vision. The first thing is to consider the labor and that's what he does. And the labor, first of teaching the Word and preaching the Word. Those are the two things. When you look at the passage we just read, it says he went into all the villages. Number one, teaching in their synagogues. Number two, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so those parts, he is uh, sharing the Word of God. And I would say in the teaching department, he is doing detailed doctrine. That's done in the synagogue. He's trying to train them, trying to teach them. On the preaching, he's in the broader crowd. Distinct direction, preaching the gospel. That is evangelistic. And that is still needed. It will always be needed until Jesus comes back again. He's trying to stress that the need is great. I won't bypass the last part of that, but for right now, I want us to understand the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God is of utmost importance. I believe all of us would say amen on that. That's a, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharpening edged two-edged sword, piercing even dividing the sunder of soul and spirit and joints of the morrows. It is what does the job. It can do the job. It will do the job, but it must be taught and it must be preached before it can do its job. And the need is great because the world is big. I know that our Sunday school superintendent struggles to find teachers. I question, I wonder, is it a lack of ability? Is it a lack of concern? Is it a lack of commitment? I realize in these days with COVID and all that, that we have been 
restricted in our vision. We have been narrowed down. It's almost nailed down to home to a certain degree until churches and pastors and leaders began to fight back and say, we have got to get together. Because if we don't get together, one of the great things that is lost among Christian people is peripheral vision. A wider vision of seeing everybody, but the sickness and everything that's going on has caused us to be very narrow of vision. So we need workers. There's uh, this, you know, he's teaching, he's preaching. At the very last, he says we need workers. That's where he's going to. So the need is great. Our, church, our churches struggle to find pastors. I don't know how it is in other denominations. In our state alone, we have 11 churches that are without pastors. I heard that there's about 120 in, the, in our National Association of Churches, 120 without pastors. When I say that our state is without pastors in 11 churches, boggles me to a great degree. You know, one of the reasons we are here in Goldsboro is because I took that position of promotional director a number of years back. And in all my years, I served in there nine years. And in all those years, we never had more than four churches without a pastor. And I have jokingly, but yet in jest, in truth, said those four churches are usually the same ones that get a different pastor every four years anyway. And unfortunately, there are but 11 churches in the state of North Carolina, 120 in our national. And not only that, it goes further into our denominational struggles to find missionaries to replace people that are coming off the field. The need is great is what I'm saying. And we're having trouble. Uh, how many of us have gone to a Hardee's, have gone to a McDonald's and uh, you have to drive through because of what? No workers. All right. So it's not unusual for there to be a lack of workers in the church, but now it seems like there's a lack of workers in communities, in areas where we are. But it's always been a problem with the church Jesus said it would be, and it's because of the multitude of people. And so we consider the labor. The labor is not easy. It's teaching and it's preaching. And I'll go on to the other one in just a minute to consider the liberation because that's the last part and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And I know some may be thinking, well, that leaves us out. We're not healers, you know. We can't heal every sickness, every disease. But I think that, again, is a little tunnel vision because I believe we are, I believe we cut short the miracle work of the gospel itself. Think about the miracle work of the gospel itself. You know, well, what do you mean? Well, we don't have to give up miracles to other denominations and doctrine. Because we've often said, and we'll amen it, the greatest miracle is when somebody gets saved. Amen? We've, we've all said that before. It is. It's a great miracle for somebody to get saved. But the evidence of that and the truth of that is seen in a transformed life, which is the miracle. The miracle of life within, that transformed life. Because of the power of the gospel, men and women can be and are miraculously liberated from alcohol, drugs, various addictions, abuse, catastrophic diseases, I will even say. I'm a testimony of being healed two times undeservedly, but 
The first time I was healed, I was 15 years old. I believe it was for the gospel's sake because I ended up preaching as a result of it. I know I didn't run from preaching, but if I had died in the condition I was in, certainly preaching would have never been a part of my life. But God salvaged my life. I had a kidney disease. You've heard me talk about it before. I had what they called acute glomerulonephritis. And to put it bluntly, my insides were coming out from my kidneys. I was losing blood rapidly, and uh, my doctor, who was our family friend, told my mother and dad, you might as well prepare yourself because we can't save him. He is going to die. And I won't go through the whole testimony, but I was healed. I'm here today. <laughs> Once I was healed, the doctor warned my mother and dad, said, don't ever let him overexert himself. Well, that's a real ha-ha. <laughs> I mean, I... Played ball coming and going and never had any problems with Listen, when God heals, He does a good job. He does a great job. The second time was a gospel miracle as well. I was in Japan in 1972, and while we were there early in our work, we had the privilege, of course, we were there because of the Winter Olympics of 1972, and we were a, a singing team, and we passed out a lot of literature. We sang in high schools and colleges in a lot of places, churches as well. And um, so uh, one of the person, a person that was in the church took care of the giants, the giant women's slalom. In other words, one of those big mobiles that had huge tracks, one track almost as wide as this uh, stage. And they would travel up and down and smooth those slopes so that they could compete on those. Well, this individual took us up, our team took us up on the mountain and uh, let us ski down. Well, I don't know that any of us have skied more than twice. And both those were on the bunny hill, amen? After that, I did thank God for the bunny hill. I didn't want to. I hit a jump I wasn't supposed to hit and tore my ankle all to pieces. So they put me in a boot. They said I just came a short distance from having to have surgery on my ankle, but I didn't have to have it. They put me in a boot. I was in that a cast, I should say, for about four weeks. Uh, they're going to x-ray it, cut it off, x-ray it. And the doctor said if it's healing back okay, then we'll put another cast on and he'll be in that for two or three more weeks. And the missionary came to me and told me, he said, if that happens, you've got to go home. <clears throat> well, now listen. Another part of my testimony is how God got me there. It's incredible the way God got me there to begin with. And so we were, I was supposed to go back to the doctor on a Thursday. We had a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We broke up in little groups. And so we were praying and I shared it with my small group that I got to go to the doctor tomorrow. He's going to cut my cast off. He's going to x-ray it. And if this thing's not right, he's going to put the boot back on and I'm going to have to go home. And they prayed that night. And I remember kneeling down at the bench and when we were praying, it was just like you would snap your finger. That's what it felt like to me. And when we got up, uh, we chatted a little bit and I said, uh, they were asking me about it. Was I worried? I said, no, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. So I went to the doctor and the next day they cut that cast off. They x-rayed my foot and the missionary and the doctor are really doing some chatting back and forth. And I'm not sure what's going on. I, I certainly didn't know Japanese. And so uh, finally we got out of there and we started back to the house. And I said, uh, what was that conversation all about? Because they did tell me I had to go to therapy and those kind of things. And I didn't have to go home. He didn't put a cast back on me. I said, so what happened? He said, the doctor x-rayed and he looked at it and he couldn't figure out what happened. He said, it's okay. Still needs some therapy. It needs to be strengthened, but he, he can't figure out what happened. 
Well, I hadn't told the missionary at that point, and I said, well, I know what happened. <laughs> For the gospel's sake, the Lord healed me. And in my heart, I'm thinking for a second time. For a second time. What a miracle it is. It's a great work, but we got to consider the, liber the liberating power of the gospel. Then consider the losses. In verse 37, he talks about, uh, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And we can say, my, my, the laborers are few. We can say, my, my, the laborers are few in America. You know, the businesses don't have labor. No, we're talking about gospel laborers. And if there are no gospel laborers, what does that mean? That means according to what he's saying here, the harvest truly is plenteous. That means harvest is going to be lost. No workers, no saved souls. No workers, no teaching, no preaching, no miraculous liberation on the part of the unsaved world. So why is this all not happening? I, I believe because we don't review these things and look about them and really think on it strongly is that we get tunnel vision. Well, I just need to be concerned right now with staying healthy. I just don't want to end up in the hospital. I just don't want to get COVID. I just don't, you know, I don't want my family to get that. So, you know, and precaution is good and being cautious is good. I'm, I'm not, I'm not fighting that. But what I am saying is the devil has been able to do with this what he's not been able to do with anything else. Calls us to retract our focus to a little place. And in the meantime has blind-sided us because we're tunnel vision. There's no telling what the losses have been. We're amazed at how we're losing so many young people. We've been talking about that for a number of years now. Leaving the church, never coming back. Leaving the salvation, as somebody put it, and I hate the term, de deconstructing their faith. I have no idea what that means. Unless it means departing from the faith. Do they just not want to be honest? Is that what they're talking about? I don't know. And I'm not up for discussion on that one. Losing our young people by the droves in our country. We're amazed at churches closing their doors. And part of it is just we're tunnel visioned. I mean, I'm guilty. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm, I'm telling you this spoke to my heart, speaks to me, convicts me. Consider the losses. And then lastly, consider the laborers because he does speak to that in the last verse. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So we see the harvest is plenteous. He makes that statement. It's always plenteous, but the laborers are few. So he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Well, first of all, he provides a contrast for us. Number one, just quickly, he talks about the magnitude of the harvest. The word plenteous, the harvest is plenteous. It literally means large, great, ripe, and ready. It just needs to be picked. The other side of that coin, the contrast is the laborers are, and the word is used, few. Literally means puny. The workers are puny. There's only a few of them and they're puny. And obviously what that means is that there's a great loss. It's almost the picture of David and Goliath because of the overwhelming work, the, the overwhelming need that is there. And it's an onslaught. So Jesus provides a contrast here, but he also gives a command in verse 38. 
He says, pray ye. It's amazing how many times we are commanded to do that, is to pray. Pray ye, pray for ourselves. But he's saying here, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, because he certainly has a greater concern that we do. That's always been his concern. That's always been his heartbeat, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. So we may be thinking what I need to pray for. If he's going to send them, why do I need to pray? Because we are counterparts. He is relying on us to pray, to call upon him. It was interesting. I read A.T. Robertson, just a little section of his, and he was talking about this word pray ye, and it says, the verse verb ekbalo really means, t- it was interesting, it's so strong. It means to drive out, to push out, to draw out with violence. That means whatever it takes, get the workers out there. All right? Get the workers out there. Whatever it takes, get them out there. And prayer, obviously here, is the remedy offered by Jesus in this crisis for a larger ministerial supply. And I don't mean to use ministerial supply to a great degree because it's not a matter of having ordained preachers. It's a matter of having more people that will teach and that will preach and be involved in healing every sickness, every disease among the people, which is the power of the gospel. So how seldom do we really hear prayers for more workers? Here's what happens, I believe, and I read this from somebody else, that they said when you pray for workers, it has a tendency to open your own mind and open your own heart, and then you become a candidate. (laughs) You actually pray yourself into the work. Well, I, I would submit to you that that's a good thing. I would submit to you that to broaden our vision, we need to pray for workers, because if we pray for workers, we're praying for workers for a specific cause. And that specific cause is for the lost and the dying. Those that need to be healed, those that have diseases that that the, the gospel can reach them. So sometimes, as A.T. Robertson is saying, sometimes God literally has to push or force a man into the ministry who resists his own duty. Could be us. Are we the ones that need to be pushed, pulled out, or his terms here, drive out, draw out? What does it take for us to become workers when the fruit is ready? What does it take? Of course, in our country, we realize now that people are being paid not to work. That's part of the problem. But I don't know of any Christians that are being paid not to work. (laughs) We're being paid richly by our Savior in so many other ways. But my question is, do we have tunnel vision? Have we, got, have we gotten so focused on ourselves staying well, our family staying well, making sure that we're not in hot pockets that we have forgotten? And it's easy to look at this and see a crowd because he looked on the multitudes and had compassion on them. So I'm wondering, why do I not have more compassion when I'm in a crowd? Not here, but when I go somewhere else. And we're always someplace there is, it may not be a big crowd, but a crowd of people. And why can't I pray in those times, Lord, use me? Why why is my vision so small just for health and strength and protection and care rather than for opportunity to teach or to preach? 
and see the power of the gospel have an impact. I pastored a number of years and probably the one thing that um, I always became hungry for over a period of time was seeing somebody who really showed the miracle of the gospel in their life. Changed life. We've chased so many, so many have prayed and been on the altar and then you can't find them in several weeks and it's discouraging and you wonder what happened. You get hungry to see somebody, as we say, get a good dose of it. Amen? I like to see them when they get a good dose of it and all of a sudden they're just an entirely different person and uh, just an incredible thing. I hope we'll all pray. I hope we can all be challenged to let Jesus expand our vision and to fix our spiritually tunnel-visioned eyes and help us to lift up our eyes and look on the fields because they're already white unto harvest.